Welcome to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. I'm here all by myself this week, again. Um, but don't worry, you're not going to have to listen to me all by myself for a whole hour. We've got some great guests who are going to be calling in and joining us. Uh, first part of the hour, we're going to have director Madeline Paxson, her directorial debut, writer Eddie uh, Guzelian. The two of them are best known for things like Power Rangers, RPM. Uh, Eddie wrote the story for the Tigger movie. Some charming little uh, Go Diego Go, Lilo and Stitch TV, Legend of Tarzan animated. And now they've joined forces to come up with an extremely entertaining and funny horror movie called Blood Punch. So we're going to hear what Madeline and Eddie have to say about that transition. And then... A director I'm really looking forward to talking to, writer-director Phil Eloka, The Truth About Lies. It is an absolutely charming rom-com. Phil actually participated in the On the Lot series. It was over at uh, Fox a few years ago that Steven Spielberg produced. A uh, dear friend of mine, Sean Abaka, was also in uh, that group of directors. So we'll hear from Phil and what he's been doing uh, since then with his many ventures. But for, I want to give a huge shout-out for Arclight Slamdance Cinema Club. It's that time again. Uh, Cinema Club kicked off last month at Arclight in Hollywood with an amazing screening of End of the Century, The Story of the Ramones. Uh, the movie was released back in 2004, and it originally debuted before it was even finished. A rough cut debuted at Slamdance 2003. It's, it was brought back out last night to kick off the fall series of cinema club uh director jim fields was there was present uh one of the sound en- one of the main sound engineers for the ramones uh who also worked with phil Spector, was there alan rushka who was the director of a high school rock and roll in which the ramones uh, appeared and of course the big hit of the night was richie ramone himself so if you missed it i'm really sorry not really, but um, tonight uh, is a continuing part this month of Cinema Club is American Hardcore, Paul Rockman, uh, 8 o'clock, Arclight in Hollywood. I know they have tickets available. Go to slamdance.com, arclightcinemas.com, and uh, get yourself down there to be part of this monthly ongoing extravaganza. Next month, again, on the second weekend, Sunday and Monday of the month, there will be two more nights of screenings for Cinema Club. And a little birdie has told me it could be a rather horrific October for Cinema Club. But uh, we'll see what uh, when that releases. And hopefully I'll be moderating some of those Q&As as well. Uh, but again, American Hardcore, uh, Arclight Slamdance Cinema Club tonight at the Arclight in Hollywood at 8 o'clock. Uh, tickets are still available. So go and celebrate uh, punk rock. But today... Uh, in addition to our guest, uh, Madeline Paxson, Eddie Gazelian, and Phil Aloka, I'll have to make sure he tells me how to say that properly, some really important uh, interviews I did over the past few days, um, one with a very dear man, Louis Sahoyas. Um, I have known Louis since The Cove a few years ago. Louis is back directing Racing Extinction. It opened in theaters on Friday. Um, this is one of the most important documentaries of our time. 
uh, we are on the verge of a sixth extinction, our sixth extinction level event. The last one being the dinosaurs. Uh, and man is the cause. And for those of you that saw the cove, concentrated on the dolphin killing in Taiji with, you know, undercover ops uh, going in, trying to stop it. And the mass global response to the viewing of the cove uh, is that the dolphin killing has diminished, I believe, this past season. It was down to only 200 dolphins that were killed in Taiji. So it does make a difference. These documentaries, people see them, they hear, we are listening um, and now with Racing Extinction, Louis amps it up, takes it up to an even bigger level and looks at the world as a whole. And it's a very bold film, a very bold documentary. He puts forth, puts forth some really hard truths, such as our extinction and the extinction of, of over 50% of the species on the planet is being driven by direct human activity. And direct human activity is defined as being overfishing, habitat changes. We all know about climate change and global warming. That's considered an, an indirect human activity. Um, so this combination, it's lethal. And Louis g goes and starts and opens up the world to us from the smallest plankton all the way up to the blue whale. And everything in between talks to some of the leading experts. One of the greatest ones is Dr. Chris Clark, a professor of bioacoustics at Cornell. And Dr. Clark has made, you know, said before in the past, the world is singing, but we stop listening. As you will hear in these excerpts of my interview with Louis, we are indeed listening. Um, but for Louis to step it up and come from being a consultant and being involved through his organization, Oceanic Preservation Society, uh, on the cove, he's now directing Racing Extinction. So I ask him, what, what is it that made him take the leap into the director's chair? Well, you know, first of all, I think I was perfectly suited to try to do a film like this because my background in paleontology, I spent, you know, a good 15 years of my life doing stories for National Geographic on, you know, extinction, you know, the, the age of dinosaurs, the Mesozoic. A lot of my friends are paleontologists, and it was, you know, really the reading of Michael Novacek, who's the provost of the American Museum of Natural History, reading his book um, called Terra, where he alerted me to, it was the first time I had read about the Anthropocene, the, you know, this, this new extinction event coming up. And... Uh, and that was just a shocker. So it, it felt like from then on, it was just, you know, well, how do you tell the story in a way that doesn't feel like a, a straight documentary? Mm -hmm. How do you tell it with a, like a thriller like we did with The Cove so that it's exciting and people want to follow it. And they're not, you know, they don't feel like they're being shoveled exposition. Um, and it seemed kind of natural to start with the, you know, with, with the, the hump, because it's just one small action that we did. And of course, that led us to Adi Gill, you know, who did the projections, which really, you know, helped cement the fate for the hump. Mm-hmm. Using him as a, I mean, the way everything, everything, everything is in the movie bookended. Yes. The reason that everything's in there, we, you know, we talk about the OO and, you know, how it's extinct and the, the song is gone. But at the end, you see, okay, well, there's other birds out there. There's the 
Florida grasshopper sparrow that was down to 150 mating pairs. Now it's maybe 20 in this area. And you just realize there's hope. And part of the hope is the awareness, this mass awareness, by alerting the public that this is going on and, and that there is something that we can all do about it. So there's a, you know, you're, you use the word bookend, and we've been using that a lot, so that the, everything, if you look at the way the movie's constructed, everything is bookended with, here's the, here's the thing that gives you, you know, that crushes you, it feels despairing, but on the other end, towards the end of the movie, you'll, you'll always see the counterpoint, the bookend of hope. Well, and as you were listening, you heard Louis talk about the hump. Uh, for those of you that remember the cove, uh, the hump happened near the, the tail end and involved a very famous local uh, restaurant here in, in Los Angeles area in Santa Monica, uh, and they were brought down for serving uh, various illegal things such as whale meat. And uh, all of that was transpiring. It ended up with the restaurant being closed approximately two weeks after the, the cove actually came out. Court hearing, the owner, chef, the probation uh, sentencing. So it was one small thing that actually did work. It, you know, they had numerous other uh, charges brought against them for other various types of endangered species that they were illegally serving. So he opens Racing Extinction, essentially picking up with the sting operation at a hump. Uh, so Los, Angel- uh, Los Angeles and Santa Monica residents will really enjoyed seeing the entire sting operation unfold now uh, with racing extinction. Now I know that Madeline Paxson is, is on the line. Um, but before I get to Madeline, I want to play, she's a little early. So hopefully she won't mind waiting a minute. Cause I want to get to, to the next thing that Louie had to talk about, which is going from the plankton to the blue whale and everything in between. So take a listen to what he had to say about the construct of the film and deciding how to approach it in this manner to engage and thrill you at the same time. Yeah, I mean, well, when you look at it, we, we look at the smallest things in the ocean, plankton, to the largest things, mm-hmm. or rogue planet, you know, the blue whale, and you look at what's, you know, how each one of them is being affected, plankton, you know, because of acidification, because of warming work you know we're cooking plankton right now which is not just the base of the food chain that everything thrives on uh, but it's also responsible for two out of every three breaths you take and then of course you, you know then you start to hopefully realize that you know we're all connected you can't take out these keystone species and expect everything else to, to survive you know we're all you know it's a food web it's not a food pyramid now with man on top mm-hmm. so, and uh, so that's so plankton was a real natural because of the work of Boris Worm. And, of course, we, you know, the most exciting thing in the world to me in the ocean that is, is the, the blue whale and the manta. The blue whale, I've always wanted to film a human being in scale with it because I'd never seen a really good video. And so we have that wonderful video. So it just gives people a sense of awe. And, of course, with the blue whale, you have the extra benefit that this animal is not only big and huge and that, you know, like the largest animal to ever be on the planet, bigger than any dinosaur ever. It also has the loudest song in the animal kingdom, but you can't hear it. So what, you know, the other sort of um, arc of the film is that there's a, a hidden world, both visually 
and orally that is that we're blind to because our bodies are really blunt tools to perceive the world. So I thought if we could give people a sense of awe that there's way more out there than they can perceive, um, it might give them pause to step back and, and, and just, you know, look at nature, feel nature a, a little bit differently. So, you know, with the blue whale, we talk about the song. You, you, you speed it up, you can hear it. And it's very haunting. And then, of course, that's bookended at the end of the movie where we're, we're blasting the blue whale song out across uh, First Avenue in front of the, um, the, the United Nations building. Uh, but then, you know, the manta is probably the most beautiful animal I've ever seen on land or in sea. It's like a, it's like a dancer. And, and it's, it's part of the shark family, but it's just the most harmless animal you could ever imagine. And the idea that it now is being driven to extinction because of its gills for these alleged medicinal purposes seemed to be a, a travesty that was, I don't know, it was very poignant that you take a, a, a animal that was so beautiful and so brilliant and then kill it for this meaningless reason. It's, it's kind of, I don't know, it seemed to embody a lot of the, um, what mankind is doing to the ocean in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's, if, you, if you look at the film the way it's constructed as well, it's like, you know, we wanted to preempt people's idea that I'm just, you know, the thought that everybody has, that I'm just one person, I can't make a difference. And here you see all these people in the film, you know, Sean Heinrichs, Elon Musk, uh, Lilani Munter, you know, working against all odds, and they're just one person to make things happen. So that, you know, by the end of the film, we don't have to say, hey, everybody makes a difference. You've already seen it. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you, also, you also realize that collectively, we're really powerful. We can change the world if we if we band together. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we did a lot of thinking about, you know, how do you make a movie that feels epic, but doesn't, you know, allow people to despair and gives the solutions within the body of the movie. So we're, you know, we, we, we get solutions at the end in case, you know, to really solidify it in case people really don't get it. But, you know, in the, in the, in the first 20 minutes, you learn that, you know, from Charles Verone, where he says it might, it might sound kind of silly, but, you know, uh, it would make a massive difference if everybody became a vegetarian. And, you know, so we have the solutions embedded in the middle of the film, so it becomes part of the narrative, part of the, um, you know, the exposition. And then at the end, it should be very clear that, okay, this is, you know, if you, if you, if you don't know what to do by now, we'll spell it out for you. And spell it out, he does. We'll hear some more, um, some closing remarks from Louis in a little bit. But first, let's welcome the wonderful Madeline Paxson. Hi, Madeline. Hello, Debbie. Thanks for calling me wonderful. Uh, well, anybody <laughs> that can go from doing Go Diego Go to creating <laughs> Blood Punch, I think that's a pretty wonderful trick and to pull off both. <laughs> I think it's hilarious we're doing this giant tonal shift, though, from... Saving whales, <laughs> the you know, <laughs> unity of all things to this. But so. you know, this is just as important as as saving plankton and whales and the world. Because if you, well, you yeah, have I'm to, glad you think so. <laughs> well, because you know, 
what why save the world if you don't have things like blood punch to enjoy well yes okay there yeah i'm going with that <laughs> so i understand eddie is not joining us today no, he can't join us, so I'm terribly sorry about that. So whatever questions you have for him, hopefully I can answer. Well, it's essentially going to be for both of you anyway, and you've worked together so long that you're probably thinking, you know, each mind is relying on the other anyway. Yeah. And, my, very, and yeah. my experience with Eddie's is, you know, my dad was an Eddie, my brother is an Eddie, my nephew is an Eddie. <laughs> I also know how they function. <laughs> okay. And we'll leave it at that. But I'm so happy we have you today, Madeline, because this is, I laugh myself silly watching this film. I'm glad you did. I love a good horror film. I love a good horror film that is punctuated with so much comedy and irreverently done. I, I love that well, even more. Yeah, that's, that's what we are going for, essentially. How, where did the idea come about to go from these charming, entertaining, animated kids' shows to doing, well, not to, and plus, you know, Power Rangers RPM, to doing right. a horror film like Blood Punch? Well, it was a little bit backwards. I mean, Eddie and I, as you know, were both cartoon writers, and we met at Disney. Um, but both of us got into this, into writing, because we both love music, movies, and we actually, we actually have incredibly similar tastes. Um, so for years we had talked about, let's make a movie, but that was in the days when, you know, you had to do it on film. There wasn't digital really that was viable. Um, and the other thing is you need actors. Well, one year he was hired to produce a season, which was like season 17 of Power Rangers, which is called RPM. And that was cast out of, the actors were cast out of New Zealand and Australia and and I worked on it with him. And we met these actors, and we were sort of flabbergasted at how good they were. Um, because, you know, we work here in kids' TV cartoons, but also live action. And it wasn't easy on the live action shows. Usually those are like more like tween shows. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to find actors that were good here in L.A. So we were pretty much told you're not going to really find good actors there. We've auditioned the whole country. Just get them to look right. Well, we found these guys and stayed in contact with them, and now we're great friends. And pretty much it started with them, the actors, which is totally backwards from how you usually do it. Usually you write script and go find the actors. But we started with them, and so we had... The, of the three, we had three leads that we wanted to make a movie with, and so that was two men and one woman, which is a love triangle. Of course. You know, automatically, that's a love triangle. And like I said, Eddie and I have a lot of the same tastes in movies. We have some disagreements, but we like a lot of the same stuff. And so we thought, film noir, let's do a film noir, which this really is. We call it, I mean, we, in our hearts, or in, in private, we call it a supernatural film noir black comedy. <laughs> but that isn't a category. You know, that's not a genre. That's a mashup is what that is. And, but that's what we like. So <laughs> that's what we did. And we, that's really where it started with the actors and crafting a story around that, around them, first of all. 
And, since and then you, we had the obvious budget constraints and whatnot. Well, because you knew who your actors were going to be, did that influence how how Eddie wrote the script and how the two of you approached the development of it? Yeah, absolutely. Because because we had known we had we had worked with the the actors and they had mostly been working in the in kids TV stuff too, even beyond Power Rangers. You know they or like soap operas and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but we could see that they could do a lot more. And so maybe we're a little bit mean in that we just really just wanted them to stretch. So I remember, you know, they were still in New Zealand when the first draft of the script was sent to them, and we were kind of terrified <laughs> that they would read it and go, are you people sick and crazy? <laughs> um but mostly we just wanted them to want to play those roles, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yes, it everything to do with them. Now, did you... And I don't know how to do it any other way now. I would be... It would be odd to do it the proper way. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Well, I think in the ever-changing spectrum now with all the different uh, mediums out there and uh, platforms for content, I don't think there is a you know, a right way or a wrong way now. I think it's just whatever way gets it done. Yeah, I, I, that's pretty much how it worked out for us. <laughs> so. so now what made this your, why why this one is your directorial debut? Well, because we this is the one that we had decided to make. And, you know, I went to film school um, and I loved directing in film school, but I only made shorts. Mm-hmm. And I also... Did I did the writing track and the directing track in in film school, but when I graduated, I just thought, you know, production because I would go do things in, on movies like be a PA, and I just that life for me was pretty brutal, production, and I didn't know if I want that to be my everyday life, and so I chose to go down writing, but I always wanted to make. A, a feature, you know, mm-hmm. direct a real feature. And so when we finally decided to make a movie, this was <laughs> the movie we decided to make, given all the puzzle pieces that we had mm-hmm. put together. And, you know, since I have a lot of input into the writing part of it as well. See, I know. knew I knew this is why we don't really need Eddie. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of challenges did you, because here you are, you've been in your comfort zone of writing, you know, kids programming, animated programming. You make this leap. What kind of challenges did you find for yourself once you got into that director's chair? Well, um, first of all, just inexperience. You know, I didn't have a lot of time on set. Mm-hmm. Um, see, but on the upside, those actors actually had a lot more experience being on sets than I did. Uh, so they were very comfortable. So, I, you know, I didn't have to oversee them so much. They were helping me a lot. And that's one thing about this project and doing it the way we did it, sort of backwards, how collaborative we were about everything. The actors a lot of the crew, too, um, that I'm still incredibly close with, uh, and us, Mm -hmm. writer-directors. So 
um, they really helped me help put me at ease <laughs> more than I had to help them put them at ease. If well, that makes sense. Well, how much of a help was it to you? You brought in Neil Servan as your cinematographer. Now I know he worked on Power Rangers RPM, but I love what he did with Snowmageddon, and I have to say it, Finding Mrs. Claus. He has such an eclectic visual palette with his lighting and his lensing. And, yes, he was amazing. And, and what you... Yeah, talk about an all-RPM all <laughs> production, practically, but here. But I got to say, I mean, when watching Blood Punch, the polish and the production values and... The way Neil is lighting the various interiors and exteriors, beautifully, beautifully done, and it belies, you know, a, a tiny indie production. Yes. Um, while working with him on Blood on uh, RPM, um, I remember how helpful he was as far as being a DP with a million different little problems that you, that existed on that production. And so when we wanted to make uh, Blood Punch and we needed a DP, we contacted him. He happened to be working here. I think he was living in Canada at the time. And so we talked to him. And, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to have somebody you know also. Right. Um, that you can communicate with, that you're on the same wavelength, et cetera. And he's great because he knows his stuff very well and you can talk it through. You know, he can mm-hmm. explain whatever I don't know, and then I can say, this is what I want, how do I do it? And mm-hmm. he can tell me. So when the two of you, when you sat down and said, Neil, this is how I want my movie to look. This is what I want. These are the stunts that I want pulled off. I want this much dirt covering them, but I still want to see their faces. How do I do it? What kind of conversation did the two of you have in designing your visual tonal bandwidth? Well, sometimes it would be, honestly, referring him to other movies, mm-hmm. saying, you know, I'm looking for this vibe. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, working within the limitations of what we had. He's, he suggested the cameras that we ultimately filmed on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he had that input, too, which mm-hmm. I don't think he'd ever used, but he wanted to. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, they, they're great. <laughs> you you shot this digitally, I'm guessing? Yes. Yeah. Now, did you... Yes. Did, I was, yeah, I will say, you know, you see a nice film movie again, and you think, wow, that, that film sure is pretty. <laughs> I get wistful, but I can't afford that, so... It, it's t- That's everybody's big lament. Everybody's yeah. lament. Is the, it's that wistfulness of, of film, and the few that do manage to get to scrape film together. Um, I know there are some filmmakers that are now just so they can shoot on film, they're shooting on the two perf um, because uh-huh. it's cheaper, and you get that cinematic quality, especially if you're doing something that you want to have that '70s vibe to. <laughs> right. And you can actually still find the film and labs to process it, so. I mean, that's a a helpful thing. Now, did you get into shot listing or storyboarding? Yeah, I did quite a lot of storyboarding. Because I come from animation, Mm -hmm. um, they storyboard it. Because it's it's all storyboarded first. Yeah. Because it's animated. You know, it's all drawn first. So that was, like, something I learned 
in cartoons that sometimes people would hand me a storyboard of a script I had said, could, could you go through the storyboard and see, you know, we need to cut out 100 feet. That's how they say things <laughs> in animation, it's like you cut out 100 feet. Um, so that was, I was, you know, I, I learned from that more than anything, believe it or not. So you could say that kids' TV really was helpful in, in teaching stuff like that. Yeah. Kids TV, not just for Schoolhouse Rock anymore. No. <laughs> so You too can go from that to this. <laughs> well, this is a fine thing to go to. Now, in t- did the kids do all their own stunts? Because there there is some tricky stuff going on here, Ari especially. Yes, A- he did all his own stunts. He gets the brunt of it all. Well, he, you know, he. it's funny because his background... Back when he was, we got his original resume back for RPM, actors put all their skills, and his was supposedly gymnastics. And we thought, you know, they all lie about stuff. So we thought, ah, this is a lie. But no, it was true. He was a gymnast. And and (laughs) there was, like, I think an episode of RPM that he that he actually, and I think it might have been an episode I wrote, that he actually uses that and does a flip. So he was a little more comfortable with doing crazy stuff. Um, but we don't really exactly have money for for things like stuntmen. Yeah. So they had to do everything themselves. Well, see, that's why it's great that you're working with, you know, these the younger actors because their bodies aren't falling apart yet and they can do all these things for you. <laughs> You know, these are the yeah, absolutely. These are the considerations that you'll learn as you go forward. Now, I assume you will be directing again. Well, I'm looking to, but again, you know, my day job is still. I'm a cartoon writer. That's what I will be doing as soon as we get off the phone. And what cartoon? And what cartoon are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a. Uh, it's actually an international production of. Australian studio is doing a cartoon that I am working on. That's my current job. Very nice. So now now that you have made it and survived the director's chair and have Blood Punch out there, it had a, a small theatrical run, now it's on VOD, DVD, everybody can get it everywhere now. And there's no reason they should not see this because it is so much fun. What did you learn about yourself in the process of directing this film? Well, I think that really, at the end of the day, every creative person probably questions everything about themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was always like, well, this is what I'm interested in, and this is how I want to do it. And it might be kind of weird and non-traditional. Is that wrong? But I really think you have to do what you are interested in at the end of the day. Because if you're trying to impress other people, you're going to fail before you've even started. At least that's what I found. Well, you succeeded beautifully here. Well, thank you so much. So, Madeline, thank you so, so much for joining, uh, joining me today on Behind the Lens. Will you come back again? Absolutely. Anytime. Yay. <laughs> Maybe you, I'll have something a little more, I don't know. You can, hey. Sales or the world. You know, there's always animation. And, you know, <laughs> Pixar does have another animated film coming up this year. Yes. 
I know. Uh, it's, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. And that was Madeline Paxson, director of Blood Punch. And yes, it is on DVD and VOD now. Well worth your time to see it. And right now, we have the fabulous and wonderful Phil Aloko on the line. Hi. Hi, Phil. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am just fine. Thanks for having me on. Oh, <laughs> I am thrilled to have you on. I am so in love with the charm of The Truth About Lies. This is, you know, it's cute, it's charming, it's enchanting, and Fran Kranz just, he just sells this from beginning to end. Yeah, he's awesome. Uh, he, he was, uh, he's perfect, and he's so much fun to work with, too. He's such a great guy. I mean, this is, and... You know, I know that you did the On the Lot uh, for Fox TV, Spielberg's project. And I think you're in the same batch with my uh, director friend, Shauna Baca. Oh, yes, definitely. I know Shauna from that. She's great. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing it's been that long, but a lot of us still keep in touch. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a fun, crazy trip, as you can imagine. I know she loved doing On the Lot. Yeah, it was fun. It was, you know, it really pushed you to the uh, edge. <laughs> and you, you know, you had very little time and very little sleep. And, you know, and it really pushed you where you're even surprised what you were capable of. Well, and, I mean, you have, have an extremely impressive resume com going into that anyway. And since then, um, with your commercial productions that you do uh, and your many and your mini documentary series, um, and now you jump into this rom-com world. Yeah. What, um, what took you to this genre and this story? Because you well, also wrote it, this. It's so funny because I always thought of myself as being a drama guy, you know. I had all these, uh, you know, I was always trying to make uh, feature films, and I had uh, several scripts that were straight-up dramas and, you know, for different reasons you know, funding would fall through or whatever. And I wrote this one while I was literally waiting for another film I had to kind of happen. And then this one just came together. And um, it's just kind of surprising because it's not what I thought I'd be doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, life is like that. <laughs> so what, the, you know, what did you draw on? Tell, give the listeners a brief rundown of the story of Gilby Smalls. Well, um, the, I, I came up, I, I was, I had this idea of like, what if a guy was more honest when he was lying than when he actually told the truth? And I was ta caught with that idea, you know, of even if his situations were BS, if he was actually more real and more honest when he was doing it. And, um, I, and originally I didn't know it would be a comedy. And then when I started writing it, it was apparent it was going to be really funny. Um, and I just wanted to have all the characters either lying to each other or lying to themselves. And, you know, um, that's kind of where I started. And, uh, you know, uh, Gilby it kind of, you know, tried things his own way and is, you know, kind of feels like he shouldn't be defined by his job or his life. You know, his, his whole identity shouldn't be just based on money and a job. Like, what about what I'm really about? And that doesn't take him anywhere. He kind of, you know, loses his girlfriend, his place burns down, and he winds up... <laughs> Uh, living with his mom. <laughs> so, so he feels like he has to do something drastic, and 
he starts through an advice of a friend just trying to, you know, uh, BS a bit more and just try to, you know, people project what you, uh, what, what you, I mean, people believe what you project. So that's kind of what it starts it kind of innocently. And then, of course, it, it takes them on this crazy ride. Well, and I have to say, this is, this is an incredibly crazy, fun ride. But hand-in-hand <laughs> hand with that, your attention to detail in telling this story and in creating your characters is just amazing. One of the things I love watching Fran uh, as Gilby is we see his whole physical persona change. You know, in tandem with his as his as, with the character arc, the bigger the lie and and the and the more he gets into something, um, we see the clothing start to change. We see the hair. Right. He, he actually combs his hair. <laughs> right, right. I mean, well, well, it 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 literally starts with these kind of you know because I, I you know I was kept thinking about you know the idea of lying and not not just the big immoral ones that we all kind of talk about, but just the kind of everyday lies that. You know, it's, you know, the obvious ones, if someone says, you know, how does this dress look? You're not going to, if you don't like it, you're not going to say it, you know? So you have all, all your life, you have these little white lies that you think are harmless, and these kind of just build up to becoming something that really kind of backfires on them, <laughs> you know? And, you know, but it's those little details that many directors will overlook, but they inform the characters so, you know, so intricately. And we see that not just with the character of Gilby, but then with our, our lovely two, I don't know how we shall describe them, our nature worshipers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's kind of interesting because um, Rachel, who's played by uh, Odette Annabelle, she's, she's, you know, becomes the object of uh, Gilby's desire. And, um, and she's kind of lost in seeking and looking for a change also. So in a weird way, they're both kind of lost. Mm -hmm. um, so when they find each other as friends, they have this kind of chemistry, and they kind of go on this ride together, you know. But since it's under all these kind of false pretenses, you know, it's kind of hard to, for them or for her, you know, to decide what's real and what isn't real. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what the fun part of the film. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a beautiful part of the film is, your, is Deanna Sidney's production design. Yeah. What? Yeah, she, she did a great job. I mean, pr production design. So many, it's so often people think of the big, uh, the beautiful Disney movies like Cinderella, for example. The production design there, or Romeo and Juliet, or a period piece. But it's it equally as important with a small film, a very personal story like The Truth About Lies. And what you and Deanna have come up with is beautiful. There's not a place there other than Gilby's burned-out place that I would not want to live in. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no, she did a great job. And, and I think Camel, who did wardrobe, they really worked so well and hand-in-hand. And we really, you know, Camel really brought, like, a whole palette, even for wardrobe, about what psychologically he was going through. And, you know, they put so much uh, attention to detail. And, uh, and it, it, it really, uh, it's nice to hear that you point that out or, or notice that because, it is fun. You know, you put a lot of that work in, and you don't always know if it's going to make it to where someone notices it or not, but you, 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 know, you want to do it to the best you can. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the production design is absolutely stellar. Thanks. Absolutely stellar, and especially the use of some of the brick walls and then, you know, Odette's, you know, home. You know, the little touches with the set dressing really stand out and form the characters and the storyline itself. 
Oh, thanks. And, and it was a great cast. The cast was really, they were really uh, just fun to work with. We really had a fun time on the whole shoot, you know. And not that, you know, that's not always the case, you know, because it's a stressful situation and everyone has a lot of stressful things to deal with. And, yeah. uh, but we really had a great time. And, um, and it's nice to see it kind of come together. And, and a lot of it, there's a lot of absurdity in the film. And, and it's funny because when I look back, a lot of it, is much more autobiographical than I'd like to admit. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know what Uh-oh. I mean? <laughs> but um, but I, I did go through some of those things, like getting burnt out and showing up at my uh, girlfriend's house with boxes and only to find out that we're going to break up. But not that quick and that funny. But, yeah, it wasn't as funny at the time, but it is funny now. Well, I still want to know how he got those boxes packed and moved so quickly after his apartment fire. Well, and this is, this is an interesting thing. When your place burns down, there's not much left. <laughs> Trust me, yes. I did have a situation where only my place burned down out of the, the building I was in. And uh, you don't really have that much left, which kind of is freeing. <laughs> so you can, get, you can get your stuff pretty quick. Oh, my God. Now talk to me about your, your DP, your cinematographer, Peter Mario, is a beautiful, beautiful work that the two of you designed with your visual tone. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Pete and I, we've been working together since my very first short film, and, uh, and we've done a, a, a lot of the commercial work I do. Uh, we did that together, so we've always been talking visually about this, even when it was just, you know, idea on paper, and do no, I didn't even know if anyone would even like this script, you know? Um, so I think... Being able to work together for so long, we always had a shorthand, and we kind of know going in what we're looking for. And, you know, when you work with people uh, a lot, you get that kind of shorthand, you know, mm-hmm. where you kind of know what you're talking about from, you know, where you don't have to explain everything or you don't have that, that situation where you think you're on the same page, but you're not, you know. So, so it was an, it, that was an easy relationship for this film. Were there any, any films that influenced the look and tone that you were looking for? Well, you know, it's funny because I've always loved, um, you know, I, I wanted the comedy to, you know, a lot of comedies I feel, and, and not to knock anybody else's film, but, you know, I, I, I grew up thinking like a comedy, you don't have to spend as much time on the look as you do on a dramatic, you know, mm-hmm. drama, you know. And I really loved films, um, like I remember when Woody Allen did Manhattan and you know everyone talked about he's using the DP from the Godfather and going for this very dramatic look and um, and I would say that kind of approach is um, inspiring to me because you you know you like by the time I'm shooting I'm not thinking whether you know it's a comedy or not I just want it to look interesting you know Mm because you have to spend you know 90 minutes or so watching it you want it to be visually interesting as much as you can with your budget you know sure and now speaking of visually interesting this is your first feature Mm-hmm. You have made the leap. How do you feel about making the leap now that it's done? Well, it's addictive because now you you know all I could think about is wanting to make another one and you know and feeling like oh you know I can't wait to do X Y and Z and try to think of all the things I've learned that you know you hope you can get better you know mm-hmm. so it's kind of addictive um, and I think any of uh, as filmmakers who make films, we get addicted to it. We're, you know, kind of crazy in that way because it's such a, re- you know, insane business. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's well, not easy. But, he- um, but I, I, that, I am hoping and looking forward to hopefully making another one. 
Well, and you've and Truth About Lies has been it's been traveling around for a while. First in a screenplay competition, because uh, I know you were at the Beverly Hills Film Festival with that a few years ago. Yeah, well, I I put the script in some contests because I didn't know I didn't know what to think of it when I wrote it. You know, because like I was telling you, I wasn't I didn't picture myself as a comedy guy. You know, um, so I before I showed it to anyone, I put it in a few festivals for as a as a script, and it was a finalist in one and one in another one, and I thought, okay, maybe there's something here. Uh, and then I started sharing it, and people seemed to relate to it or like it, and, and then I just kind of, you know, kind of went with it. Well, and you know, that... I don't mean, you know, I started pushing it and going with it in that way, I mean. <laughs> and now, here you are, the film is going to be playing here in Los Angeles this week. Yes, at the Hollywood Film Festival, we're at the Arclight, which is a beautiful theater, and it's playing Thursday night at uh, ten fifteen and Friday night at nine forty-five. So please come down. <laughs> well, Hopefully you'll have fun, and it will, and it will be a good time. Well, um, you know, seeing anything in the arc light and having the arc light experience with the, you know, with the darkened theaters and those screens, which you, it's very difficult to find screens and sound. The, the the sound quality of the arc light is amazing. I think it will blow your mind seeing your film on that screen. Yeah, I'm, I am excited about that because you know you put so much work into it, and you know, and you and you'd love to see it in the best light, and that's one of the things I'm excited about, and and I really you know would love people to see it in that theater, you know. Well, I mean, it's a beautiful. I was just there last night uh, moderating uh, a Q and A with Richie Ramone. So, it, I have great love for the arc light. So uh, cool, yeah. It should it should be fun, and you know, um, and so far, you know, when we have the audiences have seen it, they seem to really get into it. I'm always surprised at how much they respond to it. So um, hopefully, uh, we'll have that kind of response again. And they can get tickets at the box office or ArcLightCinemas.com, correct? Yeah, and also on the Hollywood Film Festival dot uh, com site also leads you there too. Oh, terrific. Phil, best best of luck at the festival with this, and I hope that you will come back and uh, join me again next with another project. Oh, I would love to, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and look at the film. It's, it, you know, I really appreciate it. It's awesome. Oh, I mean, I just, it, it put a smile on my face the entire, from beginning to end. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, Phil. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. And that was Phil Loca talking about his first feature film as well. It's a day for first-timers here. Uh, his is The Truth About Lies, and you can catch it at the Hollywood Film Festival this week, Thursday and Friday. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. So much fun with Madeline Paxson uh, and with Phil Aloka today talking about Blood Punch and the truth about lies. And... Now we're going to go back and hear once more from uh, from our good friend Louis Sahoyas uh, talking about racing extinction. You know, just the day before that Louis and I spoke uh, last week, 
the court ruling came down, the announcement came down from the U.S. District Court out of Hawaii about the agreement that was reached between the U.S. Navy um, and environmentalists concerning sonar and explosives, um, sonar and explosive testing that is done within the path, the migratory path of the blue whales. That is now going to be coming to an end. So obviously, this is something very exciting in the environmental world, um, in this race to keep us from extinction and to keep uh, our species, uh, all of the species that share this planet with us from extinction. So I talked to Louie about a victory like this one with the U.S. Navy. Yeah, no, that's all huge stuff. I mean, I think every day there, there's so many victories going on. Uh, I, I realized that, you know, five, ten years ago, I was, you know, I, I go to a lot of environmental conferences and talk, and you know, five, even five years ago, the feeling was, you know, we're, we're losing the, you know, the climate deniers are winning, they, they bought Congress. Uh, but we we need to do what we're doing just because it's the right thing, even if we even if we're going to fail. Now, in five years, that conversation has totally changed. We're winning now, and you know, COP twenty one. Those those agreements have already been signed. When you know all the leaders get together in in Paris in December, November, December, we won. So the question now is, how fast are we going to scale this up? Are we going to, need, you know, reach the speed and scale that we need to transform society? But the, everything is in place now. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's going to still be climate deniers. There's still going to be politicians bought by the oil companies, the oil, the, you know, the oil oligarchs. But we're, you know, I think we're, we're winning the battle now. The, 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 we're on the side of, of angels. We're winning. And I think the world's going to start to catch up. Businesses are catching up. They realize that. They, you know, the old way of doing business where you extract and destroy and make faith promises are no longer going to hold for an informed culture. Uh, right now, we're, you know, the, the social media is the most powerful transformative tool that we have, I think. And, and coupled with the film, you know, I call it a weapon of mass construction. You know, before, you, you know, to be powerful, you had a bomb, you killed people. Now... You know, with the film and, and social media, it's like you, you create allies. It's the opposite of destruction. And that's what's going on. And, and companies, the cool companies, are figuring out that to, to stay ahead, to, be, to, you know, to keep their, uh, you know, their, their customers, their loyalty base, they have to transform. Companies and governments are going to start fearing the important population now. And we're, we're informed and we're active, and we're going to change the world with or without them. So I can't encourage everybody enough to go see Racing Extinction. It will move you. It will inspire, hopefully inspire you. Uh, you will see some of the most beautiful cinematography and hear some of the most beautiful sounds of, from our planet today. Um, it is in theaters. It will be going on to uh, digital and VOD shortly, but see it you will love it and you will hear what's being said but as louis was just talking about governments and companies listening um another hot documentary this weekend is called peace officer it takes a look at the paramilitary training uh of police officers now as opposed to those days of days gone by when 
The police officer was your friend. You get your little book in elementary school and they say, say hi to your police officer. Be nice. Things have changed in the training of police officers over the years and how situations are approached. We've seen it unfold across the country the past few years. But one pl- in places like Ferguson, we didn't really hear about it happening in a place like Utah, Davis County, Utah. In Davis County, but now we're going to hear in the film, in the documentary Peace Officer from Scott Christopherson. It's an amazing story about an amazing man, Dub Lawrence. Dub Lawrence is a former sheriff of Davis County and a few other places, former Marine. Uh, he was uh, a sheriff for over 29 years. He got out. His son and, and he founded the SWAT team, the first SWAT team in Utah, only to have that very SWAT team that he founded in 2008 kill his son-in-law, which set Dub on his own path of investigation. Now, not everybody is going to have the tools or the means, and even a sheriff. How many tools and means do you have uh, in order to investigate a crime on your own and see what went wrong? So I had a chance to talk to Dub and to Scott. And first, Dub gave me his background, which I'd love for all of you to hear about. I had been working uh, in and out of the profession for since the early 1970s. Actually, from the, my Marine Corps days, mm-hmm. I worked with the battalion legal office, so I saw I saw cover-ups, I saw uh, injustices, I saw reports that were fabricated, uh, not accurate, body counts, you know, that were embellished, um, and I was in a unique perspective there because. Uh, I got to witness as a court recorder, you know, things in the Marine Corps that the general public didn't know about. And so moving to Utah and uh, after I got married um, and getting a job as a police officer, uh, it was kind of a, a smooth transition for me, you know, from my military experiences and my military profession to my law enforcement profession. And in 2008, after the shooting, not too long after that, in comes director Scott Christopherson. Yeah, I have studied documentary. I'm a documentary film professor. And it really kind of fell into my lap. Like, it was, um, I don't know if you want to say fate or providence, but I, I met Dub at a softball game. I was playing with his son. I was playing with his son in a softball game. He came up, he comes up to me and says, hey, I want you to teach me how to edit. And I was a documentary film professor. He knew that. And, and then I, he took me back to his airplane hangar and showed me this two-hour-long analysis of his son-in-law's shooting death on Final Cut Pro. He'd edited this two-hour thing. And I was blown away by that. And at the same time, I was also really fascinated by the fact that Dub was lowering himself into feces by day and solving crimes by night. You know? you know, well, there is a there is a great metaphoric similarity there. Yeah, I think so. There really is. So. Yeah, well, I think that's a, it's a it's a big metaphor of you know, Dub is wading through societal crap, so to speak. Right? Yeah. He he's doing the dirty work that that none of us want to do. That I certainly don't have the skills to do, and the everyday citizen doesn't have the skills to do. But Dub. Dub is an everyday citizen, but he also has this really unique skill set 
and he is willing to go through all of it, you know, to to pick it apart, to see stuff that we don't want to see, mm-hmm. or to talk about and think about and endure things that we don't want to endure. And I think that's what makes him not not only that. I mean, his smile makes him interesting, but that makes him really interesting to me too. Like he, he that that metaphor, like you're saying, is 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 purposeful in the film, you know, or you kind of bring it up early on and then. And to give you a clue of what we're, we're referring to, um, Dub, since he retired from the sheriff's department, he wanted a, a simpler, easier, maybe not easier job, but he loves helping people in what better way than cleaning out their sewers, drains, and cesspools. Seriously. Um, that is what he does. So, and he does that by day, and then by night, he uh, does investigation, and not just on his son-in-law's case, but as you'll see in the documentary, it delves into other cases, none of which are race-related, which is something very, very key and important to this documentary, and it really focuses and hones in on the police, the police procedurals, and what they did do, what they didn't do. You'll see all of this unfold, and I know I I see Brian giving me, giving me, the the evil eye that we're almost out of time here, but next week you'll hear more of what Scott and Dub had to say about Peace Officer. In the meantime, it is in theaters and limited release. It should be going wider by the time we're back here next week. So that is something you should all check out: Racing for Extinction and Peace Officer. Two extremely important and powerful documentaries. Um, And you heard about them and heard from the filmmakers themselves here. Uh, Go see The Truth About Lies this week uh, at the Arclight Theater on Thursday and Friday. And uh, if you're in L.A. tonight, Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club, American Hardcore at the Arclight in Hollywood. So that's it for today. And we'll be back next week. Greg will be back here next week. And also, Gil Cates Jr. will be joining us live to talk about his film, The Surface.